The NBA Finals are heating up. Looking for hot takes on all the postseason action? The Old Man and the Three, presented by BMW, is the podcast to listen to for the ultimate finals coverage. Host and former NBA sharpshooter J.J. Redick not only has a plugged-in perspective on the action from his time in the league, but he's also announcing the games in real time for ESPN. J.J. has the ultimate insider point of view, and he's taking you along for the ride as he breaks down the best defensive schemes, dunks, and drives from each game. And speaking of incredible drives, there's no better place to tune into your new favorite podcast, The Old Man and the Three, than in a standard-setting BMW. Luxury meets power to create a wholly new driving experience. Push the limits this NBA season with the brand that set the ultimate standard. BMW, the ultimate driving machine. thousand plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight, I guarantee you. Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch. Here it is. One fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Now get ready, this is the Platinum Sombrero Podcast with your hosts, Dylan Short and Adam Doc Herbert. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Platinum Sombrero. Dylan and Doc coming at you as always. And today is a very special day. The MLB draft is finally done. And to break down the coverage in the best way possible, since we love you guys, I want to bring the best analysis to you. We brought on the number one MLB draft guru, national writer Carlos Colazo for Baseball America. Carlos, thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks for the kind words, guys. Happy to be here. Glad the draft is in the rearview mirror. Uh, so I'm excited to kind of jump into it and, and talk about these guys with you. Now, before we get into the questions, I got to ask, how many hours did you spend going oh, over tape for your, <laughs> ju- not even for the draft, just for the pre-draft stuff, ranking guys and everything? How many hours, if you had to take a guess, did you spend looking at high school and college film? Oh my God. I can't, I, I don't even know. I mean, I mean, we've been prepping for this basically since this time last year. So actually last year when the draft ended literally the next day, the big high school showcase to start off the 2018 draft cycle was the next day down in Florida. So me and Hudson Belinsky at the time drove down there and immediately started watching players. So I, it really is a year long process. I mean, there's a little break in the winter where not much is going on. Uh, but over the summer, you're watching high school showcases and tournaments there. You're watching college guys in the Cape Cod League uh, and with USA Baseball. Then the spring rolls around. You actually get real games that matter. Um, so it's it's not really much of an exaggeration to say it's a year-long process for it, whether that's watching players, talking to scouts, or writing reports. Something is always going on. I mean, when I get started looking at 
NFL, like when I get started looking at uh, NFL profiles for the draft and I start breaking mm-hmm. down draft profiles and I'll spend, I'll tell people I'll spend probably a hundred to 150, almost 200 hours looking at film. They'll look at me crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is nothing compared to what you guys <laughs> do. I mean, you yeah. probably are hitting a hundred to 200 hours before the first month is out. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I don't even think of it in hours. So it's, it's really hard for me to like, like pare that down and figure out what it would be. But I mean, it's awesome though. Like that's my job is to watch baseball. It doesn't get much better than that. So it really doesn't feel like work after a certain point. Now what's some of the key differences watching football. It's pretty easy to tell when you are watching a football film, for instance, when I'm looking at a running back uh, Mm -hmm. at a college, it's pretty easy to tell what is going to translate at the next level. There's a way they move their feet. There's a way they take on tacklers or a way that they move that, that gives you pretty clear tells the way that their eyes move. Baseball is a whole different ball game and baseball is my first love, but projecting a player from age 17 to what he could be as a major leaguer and where he profiles in addition to thousands of other players. I have no idea how you guys do that. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't really have to do it. We just have to ask the guys who get paid to do it, which are the scouts. And they're obviously really good at it. That's why they get paid to do it. That's why they're doing it year-round. But, I mean, you mentioned it. It's just it's so much tougher because you have to project on these guys. The MLB draft, and I think this is part of the reason why uh, the MLB draft as a, as a show isn't as exciting as the NBA and NFL draft is because you hear these guys get selected, and then it can be two, three, four, even six years down the line before they're on your major league club, just because the separation from high school and college to the major league level is so extreme. And you have so many different levels of minor league ball in between them. Uh, it's just a lot harder to play at the biggest level. At least the gap between the biggest level and the amateur level is a lot bigger. You have to project how guys bodies are going to develop. You have to be able to break down their skills, their natural skills and how those skills will allow them to improve or make mechanical adjustments be able to break down hand-eye coordination, um, just all sorts of different little things that go into it. Um, and obviously it's different scouting batters and pitchers. So you even see some teams now that are having specialists who literally only go watch the top pitchers and hitting specialists that literally just go there and watch the top hitters to see uh, how these guys are going to translate. And a lot of it is just knowing guys who have come before, how those body types have progressed uh, in comparing them to the guys you're seeing now. If you've seen a guy with long arms at the plate who struggled to get him inside pitches uh, and he doesn't have the bat speed or the hand speed to kind of make that correction, maybe you, you see a guy who's done that previously and you, you, you think that's going to happen with this guy. But there's just so many things that go into it. Um, and for me, it's kind of fun being able to pick some of these scouts' brains and, and try to get into their process a little bit. But definitely glad I don't have to be the guy who's putting <laughs> a dollar sign on the muscle. <laughs> It's all good when it's not your reputation on the line, basically. When you can say, well, this guy told me, so it's him. <laughs> exactly. See, it's great. It works out for us. Win-win. <laughs> now, we have a little bit of a, of a time clock, so we're going to go ahead and jump right into this. You actually, you're, I'm assuming you are still a Braves fan. I know you covered the Braves. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's kind of obvious. I, I tweet about the Braves probably more than other teams. Like, I definitely grew up a Braves fan. I, I wouldn't tell people I'm a Braves fan now. I, I probably still wouldn't say that, but... I definitely have more invested in the Braves than other teams just because of my history watching them and covering them for a brief spell and just interacting with Braves fans on Twitter. It's okay. For our show and our listeners, you can be 100% honest and say full Braves all the time. Screw the rest of the NL East. Uh, so, first things first, what did you think about the Braves draft and the first draft under Alex Anthopoulos? 
I mean, I, I thought it was awesome. I think they really hit it out of the park. I'm sure most Braves fans are thrilled with it just by looking at kind of where we have guys ranked compared to where they were selected. I think their first four guys, uh, with the exception of Carter Stewart, were all uh, ranked higher than where the Braves took him. And I think the first three were even first-round talents based on where we had them on the BA 500. And I think, I mean, you could argue easily that they got three first round talents with their first three picks. Uh, and when you add in the fact that they didn't have a third round pick, um, I don't know how you can go away from the draft with anything other than being thrilled. Um, I also like their draft because they're, they're one of the few teams who we projected pretty accurately. We had Carter Stewart mock there very early and very often. I know we mixed in Nolan Gorman a little bit, but we ended on Carter Stewart and got it right. And we also heard they were going to go high upside with their first pick and then college heavy the rest of the way. And that's how the top 10 rounds unfolded. So I was, I was pretty happy with that just because it, it made us look good after the fact, but no, I I really like this draft class as a whole. That's actually something that doc was asking me about before the show. And doc Mm -hmm. is, is the college guru of our show. Uh, Yeah. You guys do a phenomenal job at baseball America. My partner over here is, is just as, is just as in depth on it. He knows players names of, of, and scouting reports of players I'd never heard of before. Um, <laughs> but but Doc had the really interesting question, so I kind of want to hear both of you guys go on this. So, uh, Doc, I think you phrased it as, was it, was it shocking to you, Carlos, how college-heavy the Braves went this year, where in the past they've been a lot more signability and high upside mm-hmm. over proven talent? Yeah, it wasn't surprising, if only because I heard rumors coming out a few weeks beforehand that this could be a strategy they pursued. And I think if you kind of look at the timeline, the bridge are on, it makes some sense just if you're trying to match up this year's draft class with the timeline of some of the other prospects already in the system, the major league team really starting to kind of hit their stride with all a lot of these young players. Uh, So I think that makes some sense. Um, It is surprising. Maybe uh, just when you look at the Braves history, with them not maybe taking advantage of some of these high school arms, which is definitely the deepest part of this draft, because I think the Braves have a real a real argument as maybe the best uh, team for developing those high school pitchers. Uh, so I think possibly if they wanted to go that route, they could have taken advantage of some of these guys who are kind of hanging along in the middle of the uh, maybe the fourth to seventh round range. But at the same time, there are already so many pitchers in the system. Maybe you maybe you just don't have spots in the in the lower minors for that at this point, but. No, I think overall, I think it's a pretty sound strategy what they did. I mean, they still have some really good talents despite going college heavy. There are some guys that still have some upside despite going to the college ranks. They dipped a lot into the JUCO ranks, too. Mm-hmm. A lot of really small schools, so there's still a lot of projects in there. And if, mm-hmm. if there's anything that this um, <clears throat> this development track that, that uh, the Braves put guys on, I mean, they can really extract a lot of value out of guys that mm-hmm. a lot of different teams might not have even had eyes on at all. So, yeah, but yeah sure. I mean, of the 39 picks, 34 of them were college players. And of the five high school players, uh, Carter Stewart and Victor Vodnik are probably the only ones that are going to really wind up being signed. The others were kind of like mercy signs at the, at the back of the, uh, at the back of the draft. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a different strategy. Normally, you see the Braves a lot more high school heavy, like you mentioned, but I kind of like it. For- so, Stewart is the you know that that is the obvious one. Um, feel free to to gush about Carter Stewart for anybody who's listening <laughs> that, that may not be familiar with him. 
Yeah, so I got to watch Carter Stewart a lot just over the summer showcase circuit. And then this spring, I actually got to watch him match up with Mason Denneberg, who's another very talented Florida pitcher. But I'm sure everyone who's listening is probably aware by now um, that his curveball is just ridiculous. Um, it's always talked about as one of the best breaking balls in the class. I'll go out there and say I think it is the best breaking ball. I don't think anyone else really comes close just because the trackman guys have tracked professional pitchers, major league pitchers. None of those guys, as far as RPMs, none of them come close to what Carter Stewart puts up regularly when trackman is in, in the ballpark and he can land that pitch. It's like if Tuki Toussaint had control of his curveball, this is what Carter Stewart has at a younger age in high school. I mean, he lands that pitch so frequent. It's, it's a real, it's a weapon right now. I think he could get, jump into like double A and get hitters with it out, hitters out with that wow. pitch right now. It's a very, very impressive pitch. It just has power. It has shape. It has depth, and it's it's honestly kind of shocking how frequently he lands it for a strike. Uh, and then you talk about his velo increase. I mean, he's got a chance to be a very, very. I mean, he might have the highest upside of any prep pitcher in the class, aside from maybe a Matthew Liberatore. But even then, his his now stuff is better than Liberatore's. So. It's a, it's a really, really exciting pick. I have also read a lot about how his changeup is actually a lot better than most high school pitchers. It's just the fact that his curveball is so dominant and he throws 97. When you're mm-hmm. a really good high school pitcher, generally you don't even need a changeup because your exactly. other two offerings are so good. Did you get to see enough of the changeup to feel confident putting a grade on it? Uh, me personally, no, because I saw him in shorter stints. And when you're on the showcase circuit, unless your changeup is your out pitch, you don't really throw them a lot. Uh, and then when you get to the high school season, if you're a guy who's throwing in the low 90s, mid 90s, like you said, throwing a changeup is honestly just giving guys a chance to catch up to you. Um, so that is a pitch that you have to project on regularly. But he's a guy with his feel to spin the curve. I think guys are a little safer projecting that pitch. Um, and with his ability to locate pitches and make adjustments on the mound, I think it's it's also another way you can more easily project that. I think it's going to be at least an average offering down the line, uh, but you already had 270 grade pitches in the fastball and curveball. So you don't need the changeup to be anything exceptional. You just need it to be solid so you can have some sort of offering when you're going up against maybe a left-hander uh, or something like that. We've actually got a Twitter question here from a follower at zero three green Mustang. And he asks, where would you place Carter Stewart in the Braves prospect rotation right now? Oh, well, let's see. Let me, let me pull up some of the other guys. Uh, so he's obviously not going to be ahead of like the Kyle Wrights of the world. Where would you guys put him actually? while I kind of pull up the list and see where I would peg him just based on mine. This might be a better question for our minor league guys, but I, I have a pretty good sense of the Braves system at this point. But uh, where, where would you guys say? I'll give you my answer in a sec. I'll probably be the dumbest one, so I'll start off first. <laughs> um, I wouldn't put in – I'm a Joey Wentz freak, and I know he's had a lot of problems right now this year, but I still believe uh-huh. that Joey Wentz has – I still think he's going to end up being the best of the young arms in that, in that <laughs> system. Uh, I think from what I've seen of Carter Stewart, and it's not nearly as much as you or some of the other guys, I feel I would be comfortable putting him right in front of Kyle Muller. Uh, right, right around the, I guess that would be the ten, the ten range overall. So I don't have him in front of Soroka. I don't have him in front of Allard or Kyle Wright. Um, yeah. I struggle with Tukey. I've been traditionally a little bit lower on Tukey than I should have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from what Tukey's done this year, I, he's moved up. So I might put him right, right behind yeah. Tukey or Joey. Wentz. Yeah, I might put him. 
I, I think I'd be a little higher on him. I think I'd put him over Colby Allard just because I think his upside is higher. I'd probably put him between Ian Anderson and Colby Allard right now. I don't know if that's what our list is accurately right now. This is our preseason list I'm looking at. Um, but I'd, I'd put him in pretty higher up there. I'd put him above Tukey just because he's shown he can land the pitch already. I know Tukey's made some improvements, but and I, I really like Tukey as well. But I think I would probably have him uh, – I'd have it go uh, Soroka, Wright, Gahara, and, and then Stewart, and then he'd be kind of right in there. Yeah, bare, I like that range. Yeah, like just ahead of Ian Anderson and, and Colby Allard. But I think Tukey's taking big strides this year too. So. Yeah, I agreed. Yeah, I think that range is pretty fair. I mean, his his stuff is very, very impressive. Like the raw stuff, I mean, his if you grade it out, his pitch is grayed out better than anyone here except for maybe Gohara. Maybe have an argument for Kyle Wright. His repertoire is deeper. But the 270-grade pitches, I mean, that's very loud. Well, that actually ties into the next question. Are you worried about yeah. his arm slot at all? I mean, a lot of the a lot of the talk has been about with the 270-grade pitches, but a lot of the other talk is the – and Doc and I were talking about this, the very over-the-top delivery. It's not mm-hmm. Lincecum, but it's pretty close. No, it doesn't really worry me at all. I think uh, Jim Callis mentioned this on the the draft uh, show, actually, just talking about how some of these high school kids get questioned because of their arm slot. I think until you see an issue with that and them either throwing strikes or an injury risk, and so far Carter Stewart's had just a minor wrist injury that was unrelated to him actually throwing, until something pops up that, that leads you to wonder about it, I don't think so. I mean, I think if you if you change his arm slot, you risk messing with the curveball. He's already thrown. He can throw strikes. Uh, you could probably project above average control and command for this kid. Uh, so until something happens uh, to make me reconsider it, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. There are just so many guys that have success as starters in the major league level with various arm slots that I, I don't think you need to get too hung up over it. If a guy throws that way naturally, it's normally best to just let him throw like that and make minor tweaks with his his lower half or his line to the plate if you need to. That's a relief. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't be too hung over it. I, I can say talking to scouts this spring, that was never something they brought up uh, as something that they were worried about. So Stewart is is obviously kind of the crown jewel of this class, but there were a mm. lot of a lot of really really strong talents. Grayson yeah. Janista was was another guy. He was a second round pick. He was MVP of the Cape Cod League last year, but he kind of he kind of pressed a little bit coming into this year. But he was still he was 29th ranked on on BA's top 500, but he was still mm-hmm. around at, at 49. Now, what do you see in him? What what tweaks do you see in his game that that could kind of help him take that next step and be like a, a productive major leaguer? Yeah, I think he's tried to play center field a lot this spring. He played there in the Cape. Uh, his body is probably too big for that now. He's pretty athletic for a six foot four, two hundred twenty pound guy. But I think if you look at the center fielders at the major league level, there are not a lot of those guys with that body type playing center. They're just always going to be a faster guy who can cover ground better. So I think he's going to be in the corner. Um, I don't know if you guys were already set on him being a corner outfielder. We kind of were here at Baseball America. Um, so it's all with the bat. I think he's a guy who's hit really well. He has a pretty good approach at the plate. Um, but he has a chance to unlock a lot more ceiling just with the the raw power that he has. Uh, he doesn't really have the approach that's kind of taken advantage of it. And I think if you look at the way the pro game is shifting, if you get him into player development and you want to kind of tap into that power a little bit more, he's a guy who who could really hit for 20, 25 home runs a season if he gets kind of the best, uh, I guess, the best adjustments that he can make. But he's shown, he's shown an ability to hit, um, and he's got a pretty good track record. You mentioned the Cape Cod League. Anyone who hits with – 
would bat over the summer in that league. It's impressive. Um, so yeah, I would just want to see him kind of start tapping into more power as he progresses. And as you see these hitters kind of go through their development, that normally comes as you get a little bit older anyways. But he has the raw power. It's there. Does he have the arm strength to handle right field? That would be the only – because I know he's played a little bit of outfield. Uh, I believe mm-hmm. he, I believe he played a fair bit of outfield in the Cape Cod as well. Uh, yeah. I've also heard he's actually very athletic for his size. I think he goes all of about, what, 6'3", 240. Uh, yep. Is he athletic enough to man a corner, and does he have the arm? Yeah, I think he's definitely athletic enough to man a corner. I don't think the arm is anything exceptional. I think he can play there if you need. He's not going to have, like – some crazy arm like Jason Hayward or something like that, but it's definitely, it would be, it would be fine there. Left field might be a better fit. I just depends on who your other outfitters are, but if you needed him to, he could handle it for sure. I think the big thing is he is, he is pretty athletic for how big he is. So he can get some balls and create some range there. So I think it'd be fine. I do have a fun exercise here. Um, I wanted to ask who, and I, <laughs> Fair warning, I made both of them stop and an- before they could answer this question before the show actually started. I want to know your favorite pick from this Braves yeah. draft. Not the not the best pick like Carter Stewart. I want I want to know your favorite value pick. What was the <laughs> best pick per round uh, of the entire draft? And I want both of you guys to go. Carlos, you start. All right, sounds good. Yeah, let's just get it out of the way. Carter Stewart's the best player in this draft for the Braves. So that's the obvious one. My favorite pick is actually, you have to go on day three, CJ Alexander uh, in the 20th round. He was the 592nd pick. Uh, He is committed to, I think it's uh, one of the bigger Florida schools uh, out of Juco. So if he can, if he's signable or the Braves took him, I think that's a tremendous value. He's the brother of Blaze Alexander, who's probably the more famous prospect, but they're both in this class. He's a guy who has plus raw power. He hit really well this year with State College of Florida, uh, and he's got a tremendous arm as well. So he has a chance to stick at third, and if not, he profiles just fine in right field, and he's a guy who maybe doesn't have the best, have the best hit ability in the world, but he's got some real power uh, and could be an interesting uh, position player if if everything breaks right with him. So I think that's a that's a fantastic pick. Doc? Uh, I'm going to go w- with uh, two, actually. Uh, I have a day three pick as well, Victor Vodnik, uh, who mm-hmm. is a um, kind of smaller guy from – he's just got a really great story. He's, like, from an impoverished area of California. He doesn't have a whole lot of formal training, but he was up to mm-hmm. 96. Um, I think that he's, he's he was one of the, the five – uh, five guys that uh, that were high schoolers that got taken, and he could be a real uh, diamond in the rough type. You get him, mm-hmm. uh, like you were talking about with Janista, you get him with some the right player development guys. Who knows what you could unlock? Mm-hmm. And um, and I also think the Tristan Beck pick, uh, he was the the 112 selection in the draft. He was ranked uh, 31st on on BA's top 500. I mean, this guy's got got potential for four plus pitches, and. Uh, and he's been pitching at Stanford, which is a, a really strong program too. So um, I just was, um, he was the only pick that when it happened, it, it, it really made me sit up and take <laughs> notice and say, what are you talking about? What is he still doing here? So that's, yeah. I, I know he's got a little bit of a, the history with the stress fracture on his back, but you know what? These guys are running themselves through the ringer all the time. So everybody's mm-hmm. kind of playing hurt a little bit, yeah. you know? So I, I, I love the Tristan back pick. Yeah, the Beck one is fun because I've heard from a lot of people who are like when the Braves are picking in the fourth round, they're kind of wondering who they're going to get. And people legit thought 
that Beck was just already off the board. Uh, so when that happens, you know, it's a good pick. I know there were some teams worried about the medical. It's, it's definitely a serious injury, uh, but he showed he was healthy all this spring, made all his starts. Uh, all his stuff showed pretty early this spring. It looked like he had all his pitches back. Kind of faded a little bit near the end, but I don't think scouts are too concerned just because he missed so much time. So it's going to take a little bit to get him all the way back. But yeah, if he can get back to his, to his peak form, his freshman year, uh, that is a very scary pitcher. Maybe not a, a number one or number two guy, but definitely a solid middle of the rotation starter if he can get everything together. Do you see Beck as a starter? Because I've been kind of looking at him as a reliever where I think that as a reliever, I kept thinking that he would make it to the, I thought he would be a flyer through the system if you had him in the bullpen. No, I think I would go a little bit slower with him just because of the injury stuff. And when you got the, when you have a guy that has four pitches, uh, and like you mentioned, I think it's accurate. They all have a chance to be plus pitches. They're all above average presently. Uh, I think the fastball and curveball, at least when I saw him, were ahead of the other two, changeup and slider for me. But a, a guy with that kind of repertoire, I'd definitely give him a chance to start. Um, he doesn't kind of have anything overwhelming as far as a fastball. It's pretty pretty standard, low 90s into the 94, 95 range at his best. So I think he profiles better as a starter than a reliever, actually. I will say what worries me is when you talk about a starter who's weighing it at 160 pounds. I don't like that. Um, <laughs> I think actually that's uh, that's it's not his actual weight. He's a little heavier than that. We had to update it. But from a fourth round pick, let's jump to, and I I don't know as much about the draft, um, mm-hmm. but Trey Riley, the fifth round pick. I love the potential there, and it's he's got the the big time stuff. Uh, not nearly as polished as Tristan Beck, but mm-hmm. big time stuff and his mound presence. I love seeing a guy like that on the mound. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a JJ Cooper favorite. He always loves the Juco guys, the, the division two, II, division three guys, but Trey Riley actually comes from a school that has turned out quite a few pitchers in recent years. And like you mentioned, the stuff is very loud. Uh, he's a pretty good strike thrower. It's easy out of his hand. He gets up to 97. Uh, his slider is the pitch that's probably going to be the difference maker for him. Um, it's ranged from solid to a plus plus offering. If he can find some consistency with that pitch, watch out. I mean, he, I think he's got a ceiling of a middle rotation starter, but he's a guy who I could see making an impact in a bullpen. Uh, if it didn't work out as a starter, he's got the raw stuff to kind of be a shutdown reliever too. I believe I read from JJ that he might have the best slider in the class. So that always makes me happy to see. Um, yeah, I, I'd put Griffin Roberts above him, but it's, it's a good one at its best. I think Roberts just cause it's more consistent at this point. Now we do Riley. Go ahead. Go ahead. Riley's real animated on the mound too. I got to got to see a little bit of video. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of. I I like that kind of. It's not so much flair. It's not like uh, he's having trouble dealing with his emotions. He just looks like he's having a lot of fun while he's pitching mm-hmm. more than more than uh, you you generally see on the mound. Mm-hmm. So that's that's cool. I think I think that he could be a a real interesting guy to keep an eye on. He, he was yeah. a real pop up guy. He was kind of nobody for the for the first part of the process. Agreed. We didn't hear about him until late, um, and when we did start making some calls on him, everything was extremely positive, so definitely a fun one. All right, real quick, because we know you got to go, so we always have our fun <laughs> questions at the end. So yeah. real quick, 30-second answers here uh, on the current Atlanta Braves roster. So getting away from the draft real quick, what do you think yeah. about this Atlanta Braves squad? What What about them has been the most surprising thing to you, and do you think that they can win the division this year? Uh, so, yeah, I'd say the, the most impressive thing is just how these hitters, some of these younger hitters have come up and just gone on a tear right away. I think the most surprising thing is probably Ozzy Albee's power. Uh, the development that guys like uh, Sean Newcomb are making on the mound is a very encouraging. Um, over the course of the season, I think the pitching, I think it's pretty obvious the hitting is going to be enough. 
the pitching will be the question mark for me. I know Tehran struggled a little bit this year at times. Uh, it's hard to tell what you're going to get out of him. I don't think they're going to win the division. I think the Nationals will eventually beat them out for it. Ooh. But the fact that the fact that they've played this this strongly this far into the season, uh, it's it's not a fluke. They're not here by accident. So got a chance. Maybe maybe play for a wild card game. But I, I think the Nationals will probably catch them. Well, I'm not going to pretend like I'm happy to hear that. I. <laughs> I'm going to hold out hope that they're going to keep this going, that they're going to be the twins. Yeah, that's the, the good thing is with this team is like it, it gives fans for the first time in what feels like forever a reason to be hopeful and optimistic. And they're they're one of the most fun teams to watch in the league. So regardless of what they do, they're fun to watch every night. How do you feel about their their long term outlook? Do you feel like that this is I've been saying this is even no matter what they do in 2018, it's still just kind of a jumping off point. Uh, yep. there, there's some fun little arguments going on, uh, some good natured arguments going on between some of the writers, uh, and some of, some of our colleagues about, um, just what the Braves will do if they find themselves still in first come the end of June, uh, mm-hmm. middle of July about how, whether they would call up Austin Riley or whether they would make a trade for a third baseman. Uh, a lot of us have always stated, and I'm on this line of thinking that, the way that they view this squad, they're still going to put a precedence on getting the guys that they feel are, are their big time contenders for next year about getting their feet wet this year. I don't mm-hmm. think that the standings will play a huge role in whether or not they get some of these guys like Austin Riley or Evan Phillips uh, or maybe even Colby Allard down the line mm-hmm. this season, getting them their reps. Yeah. So as a question, do I think they'll push them aggressively? Yeah, I guess. Less aggressively yeah, I, than they did under copy, but uh, still aggressively for most teams. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be it'll be curious. Obviously, third base is probably the biggest question people have just because of what Riley's done the minors, uh, and maybe there's the biggest hole there. Although I think Camargo's probably done a pretty pretty decent job filling in for for what he is. Um, and the, the injury kind of complicates things a bit as well. But I think you'll see Riley at some point this year. It'll probably be a normal September call up. Maybe it's a little before that. I'm not sure. It's tough. All right, so we are gonna we're gonna pare down our questions. So we're just gonna go with uh, we just got one today, and this is our favorite mm-hmm. one to ask people. You got to tell an embarrassing childhood story. <laughs> an embarrassing childhood story. Yes. You got to humanize uh, yourself. Uh, let's see. You can tell an, an embarrassing story from from adulthood as well. If, if it's easier to access. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh man. Well, actually, earlier today at dinner, me and the family were just talking about how we dressed as children, and it was a pretty terrible get-up. I think we went to school every day, and I wore, like, high-top, black and red Nike sneakers, khaki shorts, and, like, polos tucked in when I was in middle school. So that's probably pretty embarrassing to look back on. <laughs> like, an actual moment that jumps out? Ah, I don't know. Unfortunately, I guess I haven't had too many of them. I don't know. No, that's, <laughs> Off that's the good. board. No, that, that's uh, that's probably pretty good that you don't have any that immediately jump to mind. I, I have to <laughs> had to sort through like ten or fifteen when we, you know when we first started doing this. So. Right. Yeah. The real question is, we have enough stories to fill up the entire time slot. So, <laughs> for to have somebody who just has kind of the normal life, I'm a little shocked <laughs> that there's not one embarrassing story. There's not one trip and fall down the stairs somewhere along the lines. But that's okay. I'll trust you. Uh, <laughs> Next time we have you on, I will expect a better story. Uh, yeah, I'll pick my brain for him next time. We'll okay. <laughs> we know you got to go. We've kept you over a little bit. Uh, so everybody I out there, I know you guys have enjoyed this one. Uh, it's Carlos Colazzo at Carlos A. Colazzo on Twitter. And Carlos, once again, thank you so much for coming on. It was a real pleasure. 
Yeah, yeah really, sure, guys. Man. Thanks a lot. This was fun. Be happy to come on again in the future when I have a little bit more time, but thanks for having me. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back, right here on the Platinum Sombrero. That was one of the more fun interviews I think I've done with any of our guests. Would you agree, Doc? I would. And Carlos knows his stuff. If there's uh, anything to be said about him, he, he knows uh, he knows as much about the draft as anybody in the world. It, it, it is. It's totally insane how many hours that they have to put into that. When they talk about it being year round, it really is. It's insane having to go through that many players and try to find rounds for all these guys. Yeah, and and his story is is so great too. You know, he was uh, he started out writing for for Talking Chop, and and just kind of ascended the ranks. I think that for all of us that that go from uh, just writing for our, our respective sites, you know, we all have this this big dream of what it's eventually going to turn into, and then it's like, oh look, there's Carlos Calazo on MLB Network, <laughs> right? That's pretty cool. It's, I want to uh, do that. I'm, I'm super glad we were able to get him on. Um, hopefully he'll be able to join us again and we'll be able to get into it a little bit deeper. So for those of you out there that were hoping that we could touch on a little bit more of the prospect system, we apologize. Uh, but when, you're, when you've got a few dozen interviews that you need to do right after the draft, uh, just you, you take what you can get. So we're going to go ahead and we're, I think we should talk about a little bit more about what this Braves team is doing right now. The draft is all well and good. It was super exciting. I think everybody agrees that the Braves had, if not an A+, then an A. I think the only argument is, is it A or A+. Um, so fantastic there. It adds to an already stupendous farm system. The rich get richer. Um, and this time, like you mentioned, with all the college players, you've got a bunch of players that you feel are going to move through the system pretty quickly. So you might get some actual tangible results instead of it being four years. might be two in, in, in some cases. So pretty excited about that. But there's a lot to talk about with this actual Braves club going on right now. Uh, tied for first now, uh, depending on what the Nationals did today. I don't know if they were playing or not today. But uh, to drop the series in San Diego, you know, people will freak out a little bit. Um, I'm not. I'm still not worried. Uh, it's one series. We've had a huge habit of winning nearly every every series that we've played this year. You have to drop some sometime. Uh, and the Braves traditionally don't play well in Petco. Uh, but the good news was, was outside of Tehran's start, you got two very good performances from Fulte and Sean Newcomb, who, as much as I've bashed them both, it's only fair to say that as of right now, they are without a doubt the two best pitchers in that rotation. Uh, Fulte has been very good outside of that one San Francisco start, which, again, I am I am okay with a pitcher having a bad start. I don't think into the world. Uh, but outside of that, he's, he's actually been pretty dominant this season. I'd like to see him get out of the fifth inning a little bit more often, but he's been pretty dominant. But Sean Newcomb, man, Sean Newcomb has been a revelation. And we've talked about this before, but I kind of want to expound on him a little bit. The things that he's doing this season are insane when you look at where he was at last year. Like he he really does look like a completely different player than what he was last season. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Like, and and you could you could always see it there. This is why you kind of take the gamble on the on the cold weather arms that that you feel are really projectable. 
is because you can track that evolution. And he's been, he hasn't been as dominant over his last couple of starts. I mean, it started with, it started with that Boston start where it kind of threw him off just a little bit. And he hasn't been necessarily pitching with his best stuff, but he's still getting results. Like even the, the best pitchers, and I think it was either Maddox or Glavin, it was probably, probably both talking about how the best pitchers are the ones who, even when they know that their best stuff is not working, that they can still go out and they can still not just perform well, but kind of dominate. And you, and the Padres offense is not a juggernaut, but it became pretty clear early on in that start that he, this wasn't going to be one of those 10 strikeout starts for him, but he still went six scoreless. I think, I mean, that's, and that's one of the things because I, I don't want to gloss over the fact that there is a, a it's a, not a good trend. The fact that his strikeout to walk ratio this year is not strong. He has more strikeouts than innings pitch, which is nice. But he also has a fair bit of walks this year. I believe it's 62 to 34 strikeout to walk, maybe. Um, something like that. I could be a little bit off there, but it's somewhere right around there. As you can see, my dog is not happy with my evaluation of Sean Newcomb. Um, uh, yeah, the dog's pretty mad about the walks, too. He's uh, he, he just likes to interject on the podcast a little bit, but... Uh, does it worry you at all, this, this, the low strikeouts lately? Because if I'm being honest, it's a little worrisome, but I'm also kind of excited at the fact that he's not really wiping hitters out like he was a year ago, and yet he's still pitching really well. It's, it is worth noting, for sure. He, he, is, he hasn't been nearly as dominant, but as long as he's getting the job done, I don't care if he never strikes anybody out. You know, and... If he, one of the biggest things about Nuke is that his pitch counts will escalate because he still struggles with his command. So if he's going to, you know, any at bat where he walks somebody is going to be at least four pitches anyway. And any at bat where he's going to strike somebody out, it's going to be at least three. So if he's walking guys in six, seven pitch at bats, and, but then he's able to turn around and get, get a grounder for a double play or something, then you take, you take the average, you know what I mean? So I don't know if he can, if he can make it work, then, then that's good for me. But every once in a while, it would be nice to see him just drop that that massive curveball in on somebody and make him look foolish. You know, they, he hasn't been he hasn't been dominating, but getting the job done is getting the job done. I mean, as far as, far as I'm concerned, he looks like a totally different type of pitcher. Where last year he was very much the quintessential power pitcher, where it was going to be you know a seven strikeout four walk game. That was just a that was a Newcomb game. This year he's pitching to contact nearly every start and. I don't know if he's doing it purposely, which, you know, I'm like you said, I'm all for it. If it's working out fine, it's working out fine. Strikeouts are, are great and glamorous and awesome to watch, but they also run your pitch count up. So the reason why Greg Maddox was so dominant for so long was because he induced hitters to hit a bad pitch or to hit his pitch. When you're throwing, when you, when you're striking everybody out, you know, that's three chances for you to lay one in there for a guy to get a good swing on when he swings at the first pitch and he nubs it off the end of the bat. That at bat's over, and you get to go deeper in the games. That's a good thing to see for me. I the yeah. strikeout stuff is there; it's going to come. He has the arsenal for it. I like his big looping curveball. I do. This is going to sound bad, but I think that the big curveball is overrated in the pro game. I think the big looping slow curve is generally an overrated pitch. It looks great when you get it in there for a strike, but if you're not pinpoint on that, that's that's putting it on the tee for a batter. That's just my that's my two cents. That's why I think Max Freed looks 
so much better in the minors with that curveball than he does in the majors. When you get a hitter off balance with it, it's hilarious because they put some of the worst swings in the game on that pitch. But I actually think Newcomb's changeup could end up being a better pro pitch than his curveball. I think you're right. And and because he's he's added the third pitch, there's that, that level of unpredictability. And, uh, you know, he's catching guys off balance. He's not giving up as many home runs. His ground ball rate is up by 7% this year. So be, because he's pitching the contact more, you're, you're seeing a little bit more of that batted ball profile and what happens when, other, when batters are putting it in play. So uh, in seven fewer starts, he's already got uh, – he's already accumulated more F4 than he did all of last season. Is he at 1.4 right now? 1.5. 1.5. I was close. So he's 1. actually 5. doing well, a little bit yeah, better than I was thinking. Uh, and it, it's cool to see. I mean, we've already mentioned the fact that Newcomb can throw 97, 98, but he's throwing 92 right now. And he's locating it so much better this season. He's getting – he's actually getting, for Sean Newcomb, a lot of movement on his fastball. It's almost looking like a little mini cutter, which is awesome to see because it's cool to throw 99, but if you throw 92 with movement, Mariano Rivera shows you that if you can put movement on a fastball – you don't necessarily even need another pitch. So when Newcomb is, is actually starting to do this, it almost looks like I expect this out of minor league pitchers to toy around with things and to try different styles. It's a little bit of a shell shock to kind of see somebody doing it at the major league level. But I think right now, I think the only real debate, I think Newcomb is your best pitcher right now. Uh, I think the only other person that has that debate with him is Fulty. Uh, I, if you were to ask me right now who I felt the most comfortable with going into start where you needed a win or you needed to stop a losing streak, it's Sean Newcomb because there are those days that he can he can run up the, the 10 strikeouts and he can go seven innings or there's those days where you know he doesn't have to strike out anybody and he's still getting outs and he's still giving up two runs or less and he's still putting you in a great position to win. And uh, we'll talk about Fulte here in a sec, but I guess the it's great to see the – the leaps and bounds that Sean Newcomb has done this year. And I'm going to do something unprecedented for a Braves, for a Braves podcast. I'm going to give Chuck Hernandez credit. He's done a phenomenal job with Fulty and with Newcomb, especially Newcomb. Uh, he's done a phenomenal job with what's been a, a kind of a carousel at starting pitcher for the last few seasons. I mean, if you were to take a guess right now without looking it up, how many different starting pitchers do you think the Braves have used in the last two years? <laughs> I, I was actually kind of – I was kicking that around. Yes, I feel like uh, there was a little bit more consistency last year than there was in 2016 um, just because you know, Dickey was kind of a stalwart in the rotation and Garcia was around for a while. But, I mean, Hernandez is going cast a really, really wide net with all of these guys, you know, and, and man, I I don't know. He's, he's had a lot of different guys to work with. I'm thinking at least 12. Oh, sure. I mean, let's see if I can name them off. And you can tell, I'm sure you'll know if I'm missing one, but we got Tehran, Fulte, Newcomb, Gohara, Freed, Sims, Whistler, Blair, Cologne, Dickey, Jaime Garcia, Soroka, Gohara, and McCarthy. McCarthy. Did we get them all? So that's 14. Maybe, maybe, I mean, that's. That's 14 different starters in two years. That is that is an S-ton. That is crazy. And for the most part, last year the Brave starters weren't, you know, they weren't the best. Um, I felt it was one of the weaknesses on the team. Like you were consistently getting the same starters to throw for the most part. The problem was they weren't throwing consistently well. Uh, 
Uh, definitely not as well as they're pitching this season. But to, to work with that many different arms and to see major, major growth in Sean Newcomb and Mike Fulton-Evitz, you gotta you gotta say great job to Chuck Hernandez. Say whatever you want about how the bullpen walks a crap load of people. Say whatever you want about the fact that Chuck Hernandez seems to have the personality of a toy horse. But <laughs> give credit where it's due, man. He's done a phenomenal job. Well, yeah, and he one of the reasons they brought him in was because he worked with Jose Fernandez. He worked with Justin Varlander. He worked with Troy Percival. You know, he's really good at at molding the ball of clay, one of those you know names I mean? was not like the others. Well, well, right, but like the talent is in there. You know what I mean? Newcomb, Newcomb is the one who's doing it, and Fulty's the one who's doing it. But having somebody who can who can extract certain things out of you the way that Hernandez has been able to do, it's impressive, man. Like I going into this season, God, how many people were saying fire Snicker, fire Chuck Hernandez? Chuck Hernandez has done nothing. He has not helped our pitchers grow at all. You know, he ruined Julio, and I expected Fulton Avids to be striking out 25 a game, you know. And now it's like, oh, it's almost like these things take time. <laughs> well, my response to that is, would you rather have Roger McDowell? Because uh, I was I was never a fan of Roger McDowell for one simple reason. Roger McDowell was a smoke and mirrors guy who added a sinker onto every pitcher he ever got, which is why every pitcher that came to the Braves while Roger McDowell was here, their first season with the Braves was dominant. After that, was horrible. He pretty much ruined Shelby Miller, uh, who I believe is about to make his major league comeback here in a second. Um, but that's enough about that. I'll keep drawing it on about that. Let's talk about Fulty, though. Let's talk about the – I don't know how I want to bring this in because I've been really down on Fulty for a few years now, and it's going to feel hypocritical to say this, but let's talk about – how faulty has kind of I still like I said I'd put Nukem number one but for most people it would it would appear that Fulton Evich has grabbed that brass ring of number one starter in the Braves rotation and he is clinging to it for dear life and he's not letting anyone else get close to it, it it's been a phenomenal season from him and I've mentioned you know sometimes in a faulty start even if it's a good one like he'll have a start that's only two runs I'll feel like he's given up five or six and I don't know if it's just because traditionally he's not going very deep into games because traditionally, like for the most part, he struggles to put hitters away. Uh, he he runs up large pitch counts, which maybe that's part of my problem with him is I'm not I'm not real fond of the five and a third type of start. But you can't argue with the results, and I could keep being stubborn if I wanted to. But to ignore the results is is just hating for the sake of hating. Fulty's been great. I mean he. His ERA last year was 4.79. His ERA this year is 2.31. He's cut it in half. He has already obtained the same F4 that he got all of last year in half of the innings. And I believe his FIP and XFIP are are what are really standing out. I believe his FIP is over a full point better, too. Yeah, uh, it went from 4.33 to 2.99. And, like, um, anytime you're mentioning anybody in the same breath as Greg Maddox, for any reason – is impressive, okay? But well, that's what he had against Washington. Like, game score-wise, that was the best start that any Brave had had since Greg Maddox in 2001. That is insanity. And I I was so lucky on uh, on the Friday night when that happened. I, I was uh, coming home from the studio, so I had probably an hour and 15-minute drive, and I got to listen to, to Jim Powell call a game. I 
absolutely adore Jim Powell. And I got home and I got to watch the the eighth and the ninth inning, and he was pumping gas. He was through a hundred on his hundred and fifth pitch, made Bryce Harper look like a fool. And then I mean. That is the faulty. Like when people talk about emotional faulty and how you know everybody's got their opinions about what that means for him, but that was the good side of emotional faulty when he's just out there strutting around like a peacock, like I'm the baddest dude on the planet right now. I dare you to hit this. You know what I mean? That was is as impressive of a pitching performance as I have heard and seen in a long, long time. I was a teenager the last time somebody pitched like that for the Braves. And it's not really even just the fastball. The fastball is good and it throws hard, but really it's the slider. I mean, his slider has come from being a promising pitch to being a devastating weapon. I mean, he's bearing it. It's not even just the movement, like the the big movement on it. That's nice. It's the late drop on it that is actually killing hitters right now and carving Mm -hmm. up the Washington lineup, which for all the fact that Washington's been injured, that's still a very, very good lineup. Very powerful lineup with a lot of left-handers who would traditionally give Fulty some problems. Burying that slider in and it disappearing at the end like that, I mean, I I counted no less than four times that Harper swung right over, just right over the top of the slider, which is awesome to see because if you start getting downward tilt on that slider to go with the side-to-side break, that's when it goes from being an off-speed pitch to being a put-away pitch. And that, that has been, to me, that has been the real growth of Fulty. And it's him now trusting that slider enough to where he'll actually use it in a game rather than throwing it a few times. He will actually use it in different situations that are traditional fastball counts where he'd start getting roughed up before. He's using it actually complementary with his fastball instead of like, oh, yeah, I have another pitch. Might as well try that one. And some of the uh, the – the gifts that I've seen that that Rob Friedman, the pitching ninja, has, his overlay is perfect. Yo, it, it's it's just gorgeous. Like it's it's everything that you want out of out of out of his arsenal. But there was some concern earlier in the year that he was tipping his pitches, and there's still you can still kind of see him doing it a little bit, but they but they can't hit it. There's a you slight know, like, arm drag when he goes to the slider. You can tell if you're like if you if you're watching it in slow motion, you can tell. There's a slight difference in in the way that he brings the arm out and the way that he finishes with his leg. Like when he throws his fastball, he's full onto the plate, pressing as hard as he can. When he, he kind of jumps into it almost. When he throws the slider, he's a little bit slower on it. Now, granted, this is slow motion we're talking about. So for a hitter to pick that up and then react in time, it's probably not going to happen. Like you've noticed, it's all well and good to be tipping your pitches. They still got to hit the pitch. Right. No, he's. Uh, you were saying that, that you would go with with Newcomb to uh, to start the the game one or the the play in game for whatever if you needed to, to have somebody go up for a win. The the version of Fulty that was pitching against Washington. I mean, I I put him in Game Seven of the World Series. You know what I mean? Now, not granted, not every time, but what you're seeing out of him because that that run still stands. Out of uh, 12 out of his 13 starts, he's allowed two or less earned runs. That is amazing for a guy that had a five ERA last year. And I can't I can't yeah. say that you'd be wrong saying it. My only issue with Fulty, and again, I could just be because I'm stubborn and I don't like that. My only issue is the innings pitched, and I feel like Newcomb is a better bet to get you six to seven innings than Fulty. That's that's my only thing. 
Uh, and if I'm talking about a playing game, I want my starter. If it's going to be, if it's two dominant starters that you have, give me the one that's going to go longer in the game and give my bullpen less time to give something up. That would be my only issue. If you were to say, if you were to tell me, oh, you can't have Nukem, you have to throw Fulty at this point, it's not like I'd be angry. Like, yeah, cool. Oh, okay, cool. All right. I'm still confident. It's like, uh, and, it'd be like Washington saying, okay, you can't throw Scherzer, you have to throw Strasburg. Or New York saying, you can't throw DeGrom, you have to throw Syndergaard. And and that is what it's going to take to keep pace in this division. You know what I mean? The and, and Freddie had a comment early in the season talking about how dominant the pitching in the NL East was, and everybody kind of rolled their eyes like, yeah, okay. And now it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's pretty real. Because you've also got Arietta and, and Nola. Nola. And, and Vince and Velasquez on a good night. Let's not forget Vince Velasquez, man. I know he gets roughed up every few – like he'll have an outing where he gives up like four bombs. Vince Velasquez might have the most explosive stuff outside of Thor in this entire division. And, and that's, that's their top three. And you saw what Nick Pavetta did to us too. So, I mean, this division need, you've got to have Fultys and Newcombs and Soroka when he comes back. Cause it looks like he's, he's going to be um, back from his rehab stint within the next week or so. Now that Julio's on the DL, which, by the way, do you think it's more injury? Or do you think it's more, all right, let's get you a break and try to get you fixed? I think it's more the latter than the former. I mean, he was obviously pitching hurt the other night. I mean, he hit, uh, God, was it two, three starts ago where he hit 93? It was the, the highest that he'd pitched all season. So yeah, but we'd also, was co- we've also seen three starts this year where he was 87 to 89. Well, no doubt, but he, but he, uh, I don't know if it's that his mechanics are in flux. I don't know if it's exactly what it is, but like you could see him the other night trying to snap. He was staring at his fingers the whole time. Like he was obviously ailing a little bit, you know what I mean? But I think that as soon as they had the inroads to say, okay, you're going to sit for the rest of, you know, you're going to skip at least one start. It might just wind up being one start, but he's, I do love the fact that he's so competitive that he's saying like, no, I got this. I can, I can keep going. It's, it's gritty, but at the same time, it's almost to a fault. But I, I was, um, people hate Julio. It kills me. They really do. But, but part of the reason I think is because they feel like they were sold a false bill of goods. Like Julio got up and had a press con- press conference and was like, you know what? I'm an ace. Pay I'm, me like an ace. I'm your ace. Yeah. I will always be your ace. And everybody's like, all right, cool. And then he proved to not be an ace. He never said that. It's not his fault, man. You know, do you think that he's happy about the fact that he lost eight miles per hour worth of velocity? Of course, he's not happy about it, you know, and you can, you can see the look on his face. You can see him struggling. And I'm just like, you have half the, the fan base is divided saying, you know, get better, man. You, we, we used to love you and have, you know, the other half is just saying, you know, Julio sucks. Now you have to trade him. Like, okay. For what, for what? <laughs> here's here's <laughs> the thing if on he Julio. Sucks as bad as you think he does. What are you going to trade him for? I like so. Julio. I don't dislike Julio. I think Julio at this point in his career is more four or five, but again, it's not necessarily his fault. Uh, I've mentioned this before. I think he's a pitcher who came into the league three years too late. I think he's a. I think the fly ball revolution type era did a number on pitchers like Julio, who lived by putting pitches just off the plate. To where back in the day, when pitchers were in, when hitters were more worried about contact than they were about slugging, they would reach and they'd hit that softly. 
and that would be the Julio that you saw early in his career. He'd still have the strikeouts, and he could throw 93, 94 consistently, so he'd still rack up his strikeouts, but he'd get more hitters to chase. Nowadays, hitters don't really chase because even if you hit a ball that's located right on the low and outside corner of the, of the strike zone, you're not generally going to do anything with it. So most hitters, they'll they'll take the pitch. If they can't do anything with the pitch, they just won't swing, even if it means a strikeout. That is the biggest difference. Is no one says that strikeouts don't matter, but there's no doubt, and anybody that's being honest can can tell you by looking at the league that strikeouts carry the same weight as they did even five years ago. It's a different style. And let's not forget that Julio, even though he's only 27, he's got over 1,000 innings pitched. That's a lot of wear on an arm for a guy that came up at 20. I mean, that's, that, that's a lot of wear on that arm. And when people want to call him Jire Jurgens, you know, he reminds me more of Tommy Hansen. Many recipes. He reminds me more of Tommy Hansen than he does Jire Jurgens. as a guy that came in and had velocity and came in as the number one pitching prospect in the game and, and just for the first couple seasons, it looked like he was going to get there and it looked like he was going to be dominant. I believe he had a season, was it 20, 2015 or 2016 where he had an ERA in the twos and was just absolutely dominant and then after that, he seemed to lose it a little bit. I mean, you, sometimes it just happens. Sometimes you wear your arm out for whatever reason, whether it's the type of pitches you throw. Sometimes some guys' arm slots and their style of throwing just wears them out quicker. It's not – I agree with you. I think that's a good way to put it, that Brace fans feel like they were sold a bill of goods. And I agree with you there. Like, it's not – it's not Julio's fault that the Braves haven't had an actual ace to put in front of him. It's not Julio's fault that he's had to be the number one in the rotation for the last three years. He's, I've, I don't know. I think a, a lot of people were expecting, you know, he was one of the pillars of the rebuild, he and Freddie, and everybody was saying, sell high, sell high, and they didn't sell high, and now people are just caught up in saying, I told you to sell high. I think like, that's the thing, because you talked about, yeah. was it in 20... Was it 2016, maybe? Or that was his last dominant year. It was 2016 where there was the talk about trading him to Boston. And the talk was, do you trade him for Benintendi? Or do you trade him for Devers? And then the thought process was, and what else? Not, yeah, I do that. The question was, and what else are you getting? And now you look at it now, you're like, holy crap. I would take that again in a heartbeat. But that's hindsight. Well, sure. And then this was also, that was uh, when those talks happened. That was like right after the Shelby Miller trade, like copy ruined the market with, with that trade, you know, cause the, the, the prices had been generally escalating, but when the, by the time Shelby Miller wound up going to Arizona, the return for that trade that set the market just to an astronomical return for any type of starting pitcher. So you, it's like you can't lose what you never had, you know, in in theory, in, you know, when Nick Cafardo is writing articles for the Boston Globe or whoever is talking about, you know, the, the Red Sox could acquire Julio Tehran from the Braves and it would only cost these prospects. Well, the, you know, the common thing to do when you're a Braves fan is say, oh, well, Benintendi is ours. Moncada is ours or Devers is ours or, or whatever. And but it's all speculation, you know, not right. not to mention it never happened. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there was the there was the off season where he was floating around for for Kyle Schwarber, but the Braves wanted Javier Baez. I mean, there, there's been a whole lot of it. So that, that part I can understand, where a lot of Braves fans were saying sell high, 
And I feel like if you had sold to some of those deals that you would have gotten those players. But it's it's easy to look now and say that at that time you should have done it. Where at the time, if the Braves had done a straight-up swap for Julio Tehran and Javier Baez, at that time, the Braves would have been the Diamondbacks in that deal. The, like At the time that that trade was being discussed, the Braves would have lost that deal. That would have been a bad deal on the Braves to sell Julio and his contract for nothing but Baez, who at that point in time hadn't really done anything. And not to mention what it also would have done, you know, when you're at that point of the rebuild, and that was the, the season that they started nine and twenty-eight. I mean, you sell off Julio, who was that good because he was that good for the rest of the year, and that. That was the year that Matt Kemp came because who knows what what dominoes would have fallen if they had gotten rid of Julio and they'd kept Alex it's, Wood or whatever. You can talk about all that. Well, yeah, but but this is where we are now. We can dream all day about where we wish we were, but instead, let's talk about where we are. This this is what we're dealing with here. We still have a guy when he's not when he's not injured. He still pitches pretty well, as much as some people might hate to admit it. Um. Yeah, he, he's not as effective as he used to be, and that's that's okay. Age age happens. I'm not as good as I used to be either, and you don't hear anybody bitching about that. So, um, you know, it's it's a tricky situation. But moving forward, I mean, there are people who are coming to take his job. So all of you who still want him traded, you might eventually get your wish because you can have a rotation of Nukem and Fulty and Soroka and Gahara and pick – Anybody else down the line? Colby Allard, Kyle uh, Wright, Stewart. Eventually, you know, like there's, oh god, there's, there's a lot of pitching coming. And so. I better not hear any of you whining that you didn't get enough for Julio when we actually do trade him. <laughs> yeah, well, we will do a special. Uh, we'll, we'll call it a satellite episode. If Julio gets traded, we will. Uh, Cue up the mics, and we will talk only about the return for the trade. <laughs> right. right, that'll be a fun episode. All right, now since yeah. we're running out of time, just one more one more topic, real quick. I want to touch on: Are you worried about Ender Inciarte? He is not hitting up to his abilities. I mean, last year he did set the bar really high. Um, I mean that that he will look back at that year as being his career year. You know. Uh, 200 hits, uh, career high in home runs. Uh, he's still – here's the thing about guys like Ender. He's on a very reasonable contract. He's making, what, $6 million this year, somewhere around there. And he provides so much value on defense that he can hit like Billy Hamilton and still provide a lot of value. Now, granted, he has been rolling over the ball a lot. Uh, every time I've seen him bat for the last – probably week and a half he's grounded out the second base within the first two three pitches of the at bat so i think i think he needs a little bit of time off i th- or just just a game or two but it's it's also hard to do that right now when you're saying well who are you going to put in center instead i mean peter borges i don't need to see okay. that i really don't i mean it, you can make a case for it for a day or two Ender does need a bit of a reset his his average is down under 250 now but for a guy like him Last year was such a pleasant surprise, and it was so sustained for so long that I that I think that his the, uh, the perception of what he actually is as a player kind of got skewed a little bit. He was playing over his career norms last year, and he's playing under this year. I am dodging the question. I am not worried about him, but if this keeps up, then you might have to start looking at this. This is the new norm for him, and bat him 
animes. I think the difference for me, it's not the the average so much because Babip is a is a fickle mistress. Um, contact percentage for a guy like Ender who is not a hard contact machine. Uh, he hits a lot of looping liners, which is hard to make livings off of consistently year to year. The difference is the OBP. And last year, his OBP was really good. Uh, he's not walking this year, which he's not a tradition. He doesn't traditionally walk. I was hoping that he turned a corner last year and started, you know, trying to be a more well-rounded hitter. And he may, and he may just be pressing right now. He got the off day on Wednesday. Braves are off Thursday. So maybe Friday, he's had a little bit of time to kind of cool it a little bit. Maybe he's relaxed and ready to go. We'll see how it goes, but you're right. I mean, he's shortlist a lead in center field. So whether he's hitting or not, the value is still there for Ender in what you should have expected. But like it's kind of it's like Julio. When you set the bar at a certain level, people start expecting this all the time. So I like what you said that this might be the new norm. I'm not ready to say that yet, but I am willing to admit I'm a little worried because I don't see I don't see the same swings. Uh you mentioned rolling over. For a guy like Ender who should be more worried about hitting line drives about a quarter of the way into the outfield, basically into short left, short right into the corners. I don't want to see somebody rolling over that looks that to me pretends to a, a bad approach at the plate. And that's something that I'd like to see changed. And there's a number of Braves right now who are struggling offensively. You've got Ender, you've got Ozzy Dansby where he's kind of looks like he's coming out of it a little bit right now. Um, but for for a good portion of coming back from that DL, he he's been striking out a ton. Uh, Camargo is still in an unlucky hole right now. There, there's a ton of the Braves' offense that are struggling. Like I said, I fully expect it to be fine. I'm going to disagree with Carlos right here. I still think that the Braves are in a very good position to win the division this year, if for no other reason than Washington has been snake bitten all year, and they are a much older team than just about anybody else in this division. And injuries are only going to get worse for them as the season wears on. Now, they still have the starting pitching to make up for it. Anytime you have Scherzer and Strasburg, you can pretty much pencil in two wins right there. But I think the Braves are in a prime position to win this division with the momentum that they've carried forward up to this part. You just got to keep it going. If the Braves play 500 ball between the end of the season, that's 86 wins, which outpaces even the most optimistic of projections, I think. Um, and that's only if they play 500. You got Acuna coming back. You got Soroka coming back. Uh, yeah, Gahara, Allard, who's just I, been waiting. I think, I think that uh, that Gahara will um, he'll clean it up a little bit. You, he gets he gets a pass from the, from that last start. He was seven thousand uh, miles that he flew before pitching in that game. Yeah, I mean, and it was. Yeah, that was that was bad news. It's it's great to hear that that his uh, that his mom is doing better. That I'm sure it's a weight off his shoulders. But as soon as he left Brazil, and now it's like, oh, you get to fly back to Atlanta, and we're going to San Diego. He never should have been put in that game. Yeah, don't don't let it, don't let anybody lie to you. Uh, Rio de Janeiro and Atlanta and San Diego. There's no shortcut to get there. It sucks having to fly the whole way. So um, and he he probably shouldn't have had to come in that game, but they probably didn't really have a lot of options because that was when Julio, Julio got pulled out for four and a third and Biddle had, had already to wear, been the, used. wear the egg on his face. Well, that's because Biddle had been used the night before 
and had pitched a few innings the night before. So I understand why he was used. It was just a, a sucky situation. So I'm with you. Yeah. He gets a pass on that. I still, I still feel good about Atlanta. I am a little worried about Ender, but I'm not pressing the panic button right now. I think we can both agree. The Braves are still in a prime position right now to make their mark on this division. And at the very worst, you figure a wild card is very much in their grasp this season. Oh, sure. I, I think that uh, that as long as everything kind of stays status quo, you'll have certain guys that'll, that'll heat up. I mean, who knows? Starting next week, Ender could, could go on a run where he, you know, 17 for his next 35. Looks like Freddie's hitting a power bases. surge. Freddie's hitting a power surge right now. So, you know, you, we know that Freddie, when he's hitting those power surges, can be the offense by himself. Yeah, he carried the offense when it sucked, back when there was nobody really doing anything. And now he can, now that he's got complimentary pieces, and I think like you can see the offense kind of start to crater a little bit before Acuna got hurt. But now that he's out, even though they're seven and five, I think since he went down, if you count the the game that he got hurt, still pretty good, really, including taking three out of four from National League East paper champions. Um, I think. Once he gets back, just the general ripple that it has, I think that's gonna that's gonna be a big thing for them. So, and there's still still a lot of baseball to be played. We have we are uh, 62 games into the season, which means there's 100 games left. I'm so excited that there's still 100, but I'm really sad that there's only 100. Right? Feels like um, the season's um, gone by way too quick. Uh, yeah, it ha- it happens every year. But <laughs> kind of like our our yeah. shows here, we've been going for a while now here too. Uh, we are oh, going to have to, time, time it, to wrap it up. It's time to hit that wrap up and get this uh, to get this party started. I know you guys have had fun listening to us. I want to thank our guest Carlos Colazo one more time. It was fantastic yeah, having him on. Uh, I'm only sorry that we couldn't uh, couldn't pick his brain even longer. But the next time we get him on the show, we'll be sure to uh, to to dig into the questions even more. So for all of you out there that that listen to the show, thank you for tuning in. We love having your comments and your feedback. We love doing the show every week. If you guys ever have any questions or a topic that you wish discussed, just hit us up on Twitter at TPS underscore podcast. Follow us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on every other platform you can think of. Uh, I Pod promise Bean. Podbean. I promise you we will respond. Follow us on Facebook as well. Doc, thank you for joining me, sir. Dylan, thank you for joining me, buddy. That's 15 episodes, and I still don't hate your guests. Right, that's 15 down, and I feel like uh, we're having more fun each time. Thank you, everybody out there. You guys have a great night. Enjoy this episode. We'll hit you back next week on the Platinum Sombrero. Thanks, bye.